as a, a gospel reading opens this evening, we find ourselves immediately with the disciples in a locked room. A locked room, it's a really powerful image, isn't it? In a way, I think it is pondering, it's a locked room. In some ways, it's symbolic of fractured relationships, is it not? You think about whichever side you're on in the door, it creates separation between the people in the room and the people outside that locked. I mean, in some ways, um, it could be someone that's been locked away from the outside in the sense of, of a prison or a cell. It's, um, it's a forced exclusion from society. Or, or in a case like this, it's, it's voluntary exclusion. It represents a, a retreating or a, a withdrawal. Also, when I, when I think of a locked room, I, I think of an, an image of darkness, in some ways with the windows closed up and the outside shut out. I wonder when you think of the locked room that we find ourselves in at the beginning of this gospel, what do you think of? Well, John doesn't allow us too much time to think about it. He goes straight on and tells us why uh, the disciples are in the locked room. And he says it's because they were in fear. And in some ways, when you think of that, that fear, it goes right alongside a locked room, doesn't it? If, if um, the physical space is locked, then in some ways there's a physiological lock or, or seizing when we think of fear. We, we use words like being seized by fear, don't we? Gripped by fear, frozen uh, with fear. And so in John, he opens his narrative here. We see that this journey that the disciples have been on, this whole gospel, it's come to a grinding halt. And it's come to a halt um, behind a locked door of fear. wonder if today, this week, any of you can relate to that, ground down, closed in, whether physically or physiologically, in locked fear. He tells us why. Why, why were the disciples afraid? Why were they afraid? He says, it's because they were afraid of the Jews. And in some ways, it's very uh, reasonable, isn't it? We can understand that. First of all, I mean, these were Jesus' disciples. We know what happened uh, previously. Uh, Jesus has been handed over uh, to the, the religious leaders who had handed him over to, um, to the Romans and had been mocked, he'd been shamed, he'd been tortured, brutally put to death, murdered. And these people were known to be his disciples. And this is his fear. If that has happened to your teacher, the one that you claim his Lord, then of course there's a fear that you could be next. And so they retreat back into a locked room. Even beyond that, I think it's reasonable. If this is the world that you live in and you take a look and you see your leaders have let um, people down. I mean, this was a complete kangaroo court, injustice. It didn't prevail at all. And you look out and you see the scope of the evil around and the suffering that's possible. I think just in natural, there could be a fear from that that would cause one to retreat as well, couldn't there? Maybe there's another fear as well that would cause one to hide behind a locked door when you think about the fact that this was your Lord and you denied him, you ran away, you fled in the deepest hour of his need. You think about the shame of that, and if people recognized 
you, as those disciples that ran away from their rabbi, what a shameful thing that would be. And so maybe not wanting to expose yourself to that shame, you retreat and you go back inside as well. Again, ask this week, do we have locked rooms in our lives as well? Areas of fear where we've been ground down. And what causes us to retreat and to hide? Maybe there's a fear of being associated with Jesus in our workplace, in our campuses that we go. Maybe a fear of being associated with a set of beliefs and a worldview that's not popular, that's not common, that's not widely accepted, and we cause to retreat. Maybe it's a fear of being hurt by the injustice and brokenness of the world that we still see around us. Maybe there's a fear that uh, if we go out and we're around people and we take down the walls, that people might actually get to know who I am. They might get to, to know me deeply and see my brokenness, see my shortcomings, and maybe that would cause me shame. And so I would retreat back in. Maybe there's fear regarding health, a career, a family. If we look at this text as well, we think, well, yes, we can experience that individually. But it's not just individuals that experience fear, is it? Here's a whole community of people locked away behind a closed door in fear. And so we see that in our, we think about our culture that we live in, uh, it's a profound narrative of fear. Quite frankly, it's it's an unholy narrative of fear that just seems to be everywhere that we look, and it's in every advertisement seemingly, It, it pervades the political discourse, this narrative of fear and this fear of the other. And it can cause us to to retreat. Then if we think about it, it's for those disciples, they've watched Jesus being crucified, they've watched him be put into the tomb and the, the stone rolled in front of it. And if Jesus is dead, then actually it's probably right to hide behind closed doors. If Jesus is dead, then all of our locked rooms, to some degree at least, make sense. We're right to fear being found out and having our shameful pasts exposed. We're right to fear the mighty and the powerful whose force and whose violence wins. If Jesus is dead, then we're right to fear sickness and death because it does have the last word. And if Jesus is dead, then really we're just a defeated people who bet on the wrong horse. And so our scene, it starts in this locked room of fear. But then in the midst of it, in the midst of this locked away community, Jesus appears. He enters into that space and he declares, peace be with you. I wonder if there's ever been better words than that spoken. Can you just imagine, you're one of those people and you've just uh, denied him, you've fled, you've run away, the shameful experience of that. Now he appears before you and he looks you in the eye and he says, peace be with you. Yes, it's a greeting, but it's far more than that. Peace be with you, it's the, the compliment, the next part of his last words on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. Peace be with you. It's finished. This great um, 
this great separation uh, between uh, the, the God and man, it's, it's over. The risen Savior has been vindicated, he's risen, and he's come before, and he says, peace. In this presence, and in response to this peace, and at the sign of his resurrected body, the disciples' fear is replaced with joy. It says gladness. I think it's a terrible translation. I think it's more than gladness. It was great joy. Fear had been replaced with great joy. And if you think back um, in the garden, in that great discourse with Jesus, and he's praying, he promises, I will give you my peace. I will give you my joy. And now in the midst of their locked room of fear, Jesus indeed appears and he gives them his peace and his joy. He's faithful to his word, faithful to his promises. And then he says again, as if we need to really get this, he says, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, then I'm sending you. And he breathes out his Holy Spirit upon them. And this is pretty cool. In John's Gospel, it starts off uh, with a very clear reference to Genesis. In the beginning was the word he carries on. And now at the very end of the gospel, Jesus is, I mean, John is again, it pains to show this connection right back to Genesis, to this in the beginning. Um, so in creation, we think God breathed his life into the man, but the man then rejected the word of God. On the first day of the second week, in the cool of the day, which is the evening, the Lord was present, and he called out to Adam and Eve, and he says, where are you? And they were hiding in shame and in fear, the result of their sin. And we see this very good, this abundant uh, life of creation and the great commission to, to multiply and, and to flourish. It's come to a grinding halt. The relationship with God is severed. The relationship to each other is severed. The relationship even to themselves as they experience their shame is severed as well. And they're sent out of the garden in their sin. And now John's at pains to tell us that here on this first day of new creation, this first day of resurrection, that in the evening... Humans are again hiding in fear due to their rejection of the Word of God, some of the Word made flesh. And the resurrected Jesus comes and he declares peace for the forgiveness of sins. He breathes on them, fills them with the Holy Spirit, and then he sends them out, but this time not in their sins. He sends them out to declare the forgiveness of sins. And so the project that had been completely stalled by fear and by shame and by, by guilt is now going forth with life again. The life that had seemed defeated is given power to be sent back out. In the gospel, we, we see the Father send the Son in the power of the Spirit to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see this 
incredible reconciliation project between God and man and his creation. And the mission of the risen Jesus we now see is the same. But now it's going to be continued on through a spirit-filled community. As with Jesus in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, they're to present a decisive choice to accept in faith the grace of God made known in the sending of the Son or to remain in their sin. We think about what's true of those disciples right back then. It's true of us today as well. We think about if Jesus has risen from the dead, if he has defeated sin and death, and if he has declared his peace with us, and if he has given us the power of the Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, this power of life, then just like it changed everything for those disciples, then it must change everything for us as well. Our fear can be replaced with joy. We can also know peace and be reconciled. We hear Jesus' words in in Scripture. We hear and we, we declare at the passing of the peace, peace be with you, and we share that with each other. We encounter the risen Lord each week at his table as he hosts us in the Eucharist. And as the disciples' eyes were fixed on the risen Christ in the midst of their fear, so can we in our locked rooms of fear. So this evening as we stand and we gather, would you hear the words of Jesus saying, peace be with you. See, the resurrected Jesus frees us from the locked rooms of fear. And not only does it free us from the locked rooms of fear, he sends us out in the power of the Spirit to continue this incredible project and mission of reconciliation and life. He'd say, believe and have life in his name. And the disciples do. They go out. And Thomas wasn't with them. And we don't know. I speculated a little bit, but it's not there, so I won't. But he wasn't there. And so they go out and say, we've seen the risen Lord. And poor Thomas looks and uh, he doubts. He's very clear that uh, if he doesn't see the, the nail scars of Jesus in his hands and in his side with a chance to touch them, then he will never believe. It's not just if I see them, I will It's unless I won't. And yet, the narrative continues. And we find out that next week, a week after, on the eighth day, Thomas this time is with the disciples in that room. And so eight days later, we find ourselves back in a locked room. And if you allow me just a little bit of allegory, this time the locked room is the locked room of doubt. And doubt is not a new thing in the gospel. We think about right from the start, we've seen doubt toward Jesus. Uh, We start off even the prologue, the world did not recognize him. His own didn't receive him. And we've been on this incredible journey all the way through, and we've looked, and people have encountered Jesus, and some respond in faith, and, and some outwardly reject him. But here, in this locked room, of doubt, Jesus again makes himself present. 
He comes in, into this place with his doubt, and he says, peace be with you. And he shows him his hands and his side. And we see that this risen Savior is the same one who was crucified. I love this part here. This is a book of signs. In the the Gospel of John, we've seen up to this point, there have been seven signs showing this God, revealing this God in Christ. And now here is the eighth sign in the book on the eighth day of the week. So the first day of the new creation, there's this new first sign, and it's the sign of the resurrected Savior. We see Jesus, the first raised from the dead, and he looks and he says, don't be doubting, but be believing. And so from doubt, upon an encounter with the risen Jesus, then Thomas, he comes and he makes the most expansive declaration of faith in that entire gospel. He says, my Lord and my God. Here's this devoutly monotheistic Jew declaring that Jesus is God and Jesus does not stop him. Do you notice also the deeply personal component of that response? Yeah, I think many of us have grown up in in traditions where perhaps this individual side of the gospel has been uh, maybe so overemphasized to the exclusion um, of the great cosmic creational scope of redemption and restoration that maybe some of us would be tempted to swing the pendulum the other way. And yet here, the text is clear. This is a deeply personal response of faith required. This is a Jesus that would meet each of us and reveal himself to us and whatever luck room we have. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. I wonder, having reflected on this season of, um, of Lent and the Passion Week, uh, Holy Weekend with the um, Good Friday, a vigil service, and then Easter Sunday, I wonder if you come to that declaration, my Lord and my God. And even if you have in other times, still we can have different seasons of doubt. And I I wonder when we look at this text and as the Lord would speak to us tonight, I wonder what rooms of uh, doubt that we might have locked. I wonder if it's a doubt that the God of creation and life could defeat death and overcome evil. Perhaps it's a doubt whether he would. Maybe it's a doubt that God wouldn't declare his peace towards you, or a doubt that he couldn't or wouldn't forgive your sin. Maybe sin in general, but not yours. Maybe it's a locked room of doubt because we've experienced suffering. And I wonder, maybe some of you could be here just wondering, well, I wonder if there is a God, and what might that God be like, and exploring the claims of the Christian faith. And John, in his gospel, is declaring this is what it's about. In the prologue, he said, this is the God who's become flesh, a God who's entered into his creation to redeem it. So God is the light that enters into darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. He says, no one's seen the Father, but Jesus has made him known. And so in Jesus, we see that God isn't distant or far off. 
He's not absent from our locked rooms. He comes and makes himself present. He's not absent or distant from our human experience or from our suffering. He's a God that in a profound, astounding way would enter into that suffering, experience the worst of it and take it upon himself. And yet, here standing on this side of the grave has defeated it, has overcome it. From the birth pangs of death, he's brought forth life. The great creation project goes on. So the resurrected Jesus frees us from locked rooms of doubt. We see the resurrection, that sin and evil, they don't have the last word, which is great news. For God, the life won't be denied his desire to bring blessing and life to his creation. He will be victorious. His anointed one will rule, and he will be vindicated over those who seek to deny him. The resurrected Jesus stands present before Thomas and shows him his hands and feet, declaring peace. Maybe then with a look in our direction, he says to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who believe without seeing. I wonder if you're here today and you're exploring that Christian faith. I want to make one more observation from the text that I hope is encouraging. You notice that on the eighth day, Thomas wasn't there in that first week. And yet here in his doubt, he's back in this community of faith. And it's there in that community that he counters, encounters the risen Savior. I don't know if you're exploring or you're here with doubts. You're so welcome here. It is good. We've, most of us have been there. There's some of us in different ways still have that. And this is the place to be. You're welcome. We want you with us on our Sundays as we encounter Jesus through his word, through worship, through song, through the sacraments. We want to invite you to our neighborhood groups. You're welcome with us to our feasting around the city. Thomas was there in his doubts in community with those who believed, and it was there that eventually was able to come to that recognition of Jesus, uh, the revelation of God, God himself, the one who had overcome sin and death. As we finish up, I notice that the start of this gospel, we start in a locked room, and yet from this locked room of of fear and, and of doubt. Quite the opposite happens at the end. We go from a creation project and this great journey that had come to a grinding halt, now being sent out in the power. And the words of John, he finishes by saying, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We have lots of locked rooms of of fear and doubt. And yet the resurrected Jesus frees us from them and sends us forth in the power of his spirit to this life, restored at peace with him and to declare the forgiveness of sins for others and to go forth. The resurrected Jesus frees us from the locked rooms of fear and from doubt. And he frees us from the greatest locked room there is. The tombstone's been rolled away Sin and death has been defeated. So hear the words 
the present risen Jesus with you and peace be with you. Believe and have life in his name.